Funding for Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer is provided by the Foundation at Hearst Castle, where donors and members experience exclusive events that recreate what it was like to be a guest of William Randolph Hearst, from swimming in the iconic Neptune pool to dining in Hearst's private guesthouse overlooking the Pacific Ocean. The Foundation at Hearst Castle's ongoing mission is to support the conservation and restoration of Hearst Castle while offering youth programs for underserved students. Discover how you can become a member by going to foundation at hearstcastle.com and learn how you can support this unique and invaluable mission. Have you ever met someone for just a fleeting moment, but their spirit touched you so that you were instantly enamored with them? And yet, even though you never met up with them again, they and their spirit remained with you forever. That's how it was when I was covering the Elko, Nevada Cowboy Poetry Gathering way back in 1998. As luck would have it, I was introduced to Frank Hart, who was a presenter from Dublin, Ireland, speaking on the legacy of the Irish ballads and balladeers. I never met up with Frank again, but his spirit and his passion remained with me forever, unabated. I thought of Frank the other day, and I was confident that he was alive and kicking back in Dublin, regaling locals with his mesmerizing tales of Irish history's intimate interconnection with the art and craft of the ballad and song. Out of curiosity, I logged onto the web and was shocked to discover that Frank had died of a heart attack way back in 2005. But I was elated to discover that an ardent fan of Frank's started the annual Frank Hart Festival in Dublin back in 2006. While going through my audio archives, I came across Frank's presentation at the Elko Poetry Festival back in 98. Come along for a listen as Frank regales the audience with passionate and poignant tales of Irish history melded with the art of the balladeer. Come along and join me for a listen as Frank regales the audience with passionate and poignant tales of Irish history melded with the art of the balladeer. Well, I've come to learn that scheduling an Irish performer at nine in the morning is a, a cruel joke. <laughs> but I just learned that Frank went to bed at 7.30 last evening, so he's well rested and he's going to take us for a ride down ballad land in a moment. Frank is uh, a great treasure in Ireland. I've come to learn that he's respected as uh, a person who perhaps knows more ballads than any other person in Ireland today. He's not only um, has them in his memory, but he keeps an incredible archive of ballads, and uh, he's well respected for that. He's not only a ballad singer, but an architect. I had the opportunity last spring to go through the National Stud Museum in, in Kildare, which he designed, a beautiful museum uh, to the racehorse. So. I know Frank's architectural work to be of incredible quality as well. Let me introduce to you Frank Hart. I'm not going to just read out a lecture to you, but unless I have some sort of notes, I tend to ramble without any direction, whatever. It's strange to be sitting here at 9 o'clock in the morning. 
four o'clock in the morning would be more usual, or five o'clock in the morning, having gone through the night, would be the more usual session that you'd find in Ireland. So many of the, you may have... I'm a bit out of breath. So many of you may have preconceived idea of Irish songs, Irish ballads, in that you've seen groups of singers like the Clancy Brothers or the Wolf Tones or the Dubliners, whatever, sitting together, banging away guitars, slapping their knees and shouting hi in a pub. Whereas the actual song itself is more an expression of the Irish people. I'll try and stick to some sort of sequence, which I have worked out on, on a talk, rather than ramble away. If I ramble away, I'll come back to it again. I have a saying which, which, which I consider the songs. I say, those in power write to history, and those who suffer write to songs. And I think that sums up so much of our songs back home. So much of our unwritten history, the history of the people, is contained within the songs. My introduction to uh, the songs came from a tinker I heard at the fair in Boyle in County Roscommon. I was a Dublin man. A boy, 14, I suppose, 12, 14 years of age, and I went with neighbours to a fair. And a fair in those days, a small town was taken over by animals. And people lined up sheep and goats and horses and pigs and cattle and cows, lined them up along the street and sold them. And in the process, other things were sold as well. Hay was sold and merchandise was sold. And above all this noise of the fair, I heard a tinker singing a song. It was a song called The Valley of Knockanure. And it told about the Black and Tan War during the course of Irish freedom in Kerry. In that song, it told of the death of two men, Porrick Dalton and Porrick Walsh. Three, actually. In a valley in Kerry, in the Valley of Knockanure. And it was the first time I'd heard a song that was ours and nobody else's. It was a song that told a story which wasn't fictional. It wasn't a fictitious story. It wasn't about Moon and June. It wasn't about Love and Dove. It wasn't created for any commercial purpose. It was created out of the expression of the people. And it told of the death of those three men in Kerry. One great line, and it went, and the banshee cried when Dalton died in the Valley of Knockanure. It's a line I always loved. Some songs you sing. Some songs you'll go through five verses just to sing one line that you like. You know. And that line was sufficient to learn that song for. You may sing and speak about Easter week and the heroes of 98, of Fenian men who roamed the glen in victory or defeat, of those who died on the scaffold higher were outlawed on the moor. But no word was said of our gallant dead in the valley of Knockanure. That's the opening line of that, you know. Oh, the golden sun, it is sinking now behind each field and lea. And a pale, pale moon is rising there far out beyond Thralley. A twinkling star through clouds afar shone down o'er Cullen's moor. And the banshee cried when Dalton died in the valley of Knockanure. And we have a lot of songs like that going through the various years of resistance to oppression and the various hundreds of years of struggle for independence and freedom, a struggle which is still going on today and hopefully, hopefully this one might bring about a just solution and peace in Ireland. However, to the question of words, as I said before, it's a pleasure to talk to people here who listen to words. Back home, the emphasis on music rather than on the words. 
We have a playwright at home, you might have heard of him, his name is Brian Friel, Dancing at Lunasa, which was very popular in America. He says, it's not the literal past, the facts of history that shape us, but the images of the past embodied in language. And that's what the songs are. The images of the past embodied in language. And Seamus Heaney says, poetry of any substance is always deeper than its declared meaning. And the declared meaning, if ever this was true, it's true of the ballad. Because the declared meaning in many cases when the ballad was written was seditious. And the penalty for that would be either transportation to Australia or in death, even in many cases. So that the declared meaning of the ballad is always hidden to some extent. The ballads are an insight into the emotions of the people. The emotions are embodied in their songs. And these emotions are available nowhere else. We are a product of these emotions of those who went before us. Many of you here are descendants of those who came during the famine. Brendan Kennelly says, people fleeing from the famine. Nobody has ever heard of them. Nobody will ever speak for them. Well, I believe that we that sing the ballads speak for them in their own words. And so you get ballads like, Oh, Father dear, I oft times hear you speak of Erin's Isle. Her lofty scenes and valleys green, her mountains rude and wild. They say it is a lovely land wherein a prince might dwell. Ah, why did you abandon it? The reason to me tell. My son, I loved my native land with both energy and pride. Till a blight came over all my crops, my sheep and cattle died. My rent and taxes were to pay, I could not them redeem. And that's the cruel reason why I left old Skibbereen. My, well do I remember that bleak December day When the landlord and the sheriff came to drive our flocks away They set my thatch on fire with their wicked yellow spleen And that's another reason why I left old Skibbereen your mother, to God rest her soul, fell on the snowy ground. She fainted in her anguish, seeing the desolation round. She never rose, but passed away from life to mortal dream. And we buried her in a quiet spot, not far from Skibbereen. And you were only two years old, and feeble was your frame. I could not leave you with my friends, for you bore your father's name. So I wrapped you in my coat, amor, in the dead of night unseen. I heaved a sigh and said goodbye to dear old Skibbereen. Oh, Father dear, the day will come when an answer to the call. Each Irish man with meaning stern will rally one and all. 
I will be the man to lead the van beneath the flag of green. And loud and high we'll raise the cry, Revenge for Skibbereen. And that song is of the period when many of your ancestors would have left Ireland because of the great hunger, as the famine in Ireland is called, in 1847. John Mitchell, the young Irelander, political leader, said, God created the potato blight, but it was the English government that created the famine. And there's other songs, too, written on that, which even describe more so the horror of the hunger and the workhouse. The workhouse was the ultimate. When all hope was abandoned, you went to the workhouse. Cholera was rampant, so, so many people that went into the workhouse never emerged from it. When they went to the workhouse, husbands and wives were separated, children were separated from parents. There were three categories. Mad pictures of women and men walk my way, and it's haunted I am in the clear light of day. By the door of Kilkenny I sat down and I cried For the ghost of a nation that walked by my side O'er the white falling meadows of fair sleeve Namon The field mouse's master, the tenant is gone By the walls of Clunmala I sat down and cried for the living and dead walked as bridegroom and bride. Who emptied the village of Carrigaline? Who laid out the body of fair Skibbereen? By the stones of Cork Harbour I sat down and cried, For the vessel of darkness lay close alongside. Farewell, Castle Comer at Keel and Anor. Farewell, Carrigarlahan and the Blackwater Shore. To America, which holds what you never could give. We owe life and death, it's our payment to live. And so many of them at that time then took the ships to America. The coffin ships, as they were often called, because so many died on them. The ships were unseaworthy in a lot of cases, and they had to bring their own food with them. Many of them starved on the way. And there's some terrible statistics of losses on, on these unseaworthy ships. They said, often say in Ireland, that you could walk, you could have walked dry-footed over the bodies of those who died on the trip, on the, trip on the voyage to America. There were so many of them died. The accounts of the famine are harrowing. There was a Captain Wynn of the Board of Works in County Clare. In 1847 he said, I confess myself unmanned by the intensity and the extent of the suffering I witnessed, more especially among the women and little children, crowds of whom were to be seen scattered over a turnip field like a flock of famished crows devouring raw turnips. Mothers half-naked, shivering in the snow and sleet, and their children screaming with hunger. You know. Frightening sight, you know. Starvation was widespread. However, little was done to relieve it, as it was seen in England as God's punishment on the indolent Irish. And Charles Trevelyan, the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, said, 
The great evil with which we have to contend is not the physical evil of the famine, but the moral evil of the selfish, perverse, and turbulent character of the people. Such naturally lazy people would never resort to honest industry if they were ever provided with a free handout of food at the government's expense. And these were the people who were looking after the Irish people, you know. The poorhouse was the last resort for those starving there. They separated the men, the women and the children from each other, and the majority of those who entered the workhouse never came out again, but died from fever. And the songs are in large measure those of an oppressed people, and in many cases, a response to political or social injustice. They are the songs that demand a listening audience. That's why I like it so much here. A song that demands a listening audience, not only that they assume that the audience is already, already aware and that they are sympathetic to the background. In Ireland, you don't sing songs, particularly of a political nature, unless you know where you're singing them. Because it can be very, very dangerous, and it can cost you your life. Even at the present time in the north of Ireland, there are areas where just being a Catholic is leaving you liable to be shot. Just for being a Catholic, no political motive, whatever. There's a certain section of the community up there, the loyalist community, who when they feel threatened, the answer seems to be shoot a Catholic. And that's what happened at the moment. At the present, there were six Catholics shot within a matter of three weeks. However, Evan Boland, a poet, some of you may have, have uh, read her work. She said in a poem of those fleeing from the famine, she called it the emigrant Irish, they would have thrived on our necessities. What they survived, we could not even live. Imagine how they stood there, what they stood with, cardboard, iron, their hardships parceled in them, patience, fortitude, long-suffering in the bruise-colored dusk of the new world, and all the old songs and nothing to lose. You know, it's a lovely line, that. All the old songs and nothing to lose. The Irish brought the songs and the music with them to America. They're still here. The Irish were not always welcome with open arms. Having survived the troubles in his own country, Paddy now found himself confronted by the American wasps, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who resented his presence in the new land and sought to perpetuate the discrimination which he thought he'd left at home. One of them had this to say about the emigrant Irish. The reason I dislike the Irish so much is that they are scarcely a year in the country before they pretend to be equal to the citizens who are born here. I should have no objection to their coming here, provided they would be content to remain as servants, the only condition for which they are fit. They left one set of oppressive landlords to find another crowd waiting for them on the quay. And so the advertisements appeared in the Irish newspapers of no Irish need apply. <coughs> and again, as back home, the Irishman wrote about it in his songs. I'm a decent boy just landed from the town of Ballyfad. Well, I want the situation and I need it mighty bad. A position I saw advertised would suit me well, said I. But the dirty spalping ended with no Irish need apply. Said I, that is an insult and I'll know the reason why. So I went to see the blackguard with no Irish need apply. Now some may think it a misfortune to be christened Pat or Dan, but to me it is an honour to be born an Irishman. 
Well, I started out to find the man. I found him mighty soon. He was sitting in the corner. He was reading the Tribune. When I told him what I came for, he in a rage did fly. And he says, you are a paddy and no Irish need apply. Well, I felt my temper rising and I'd like to black his eye. To tell a decent gentleman, no Irish need apply. Now some may think it a misfortune to be christened Pat or Dan. But to me it is an honour to be born an Irishman. <coughs> well... <coughs> I couldn't stand his nonsense, so I held of him I took, and I gave him such a baitin' as he'd get in Dunny Brook, and he hollered Melia murder, and to get away did cry, and he swore he'd never write again, no Irish need apply. He made a big apology, and I bid him then goodbye, saying when next you want a baitin' right, no Irish need apply. Now some may think it a misfortune to be christened pattered down. But to me it is an honour to be born an Irishman. Now old Ireland on the battlefield a lasting fame has made. You've all have heard of Maher's men and Corcoran's brigade. Though fools may flout and bigots rage, fanatics they may cry. But when they want good fighting men, the Irish may apply. And when for freedom and for right they raise the battle cry, those rebel ranks will surely think no Irish need apply. But some may think it a misfortune to be christened Pat or Dan. But to me it is an honour to be born an Irish man. <laughs> We've been doing a lot of singing this week and I'm, I'm quite hoarse. The following note was appended to the sheet music. It says, wanted a smart, active girl to do general housework of a large family. One who can cook, clean plate and get up linen preferred. NB. No Irish need apply. And that was in the London Times newspaper in 1862. So it wasn't just in America, it was in English also. And then Tin Pan Alley in America realised that there was a music market with all the Irish that were in America. And so you got popular Irish-American songs like Nellie O'Morgan with her barrel organ She dresses in colour so gay Walking the streets night and day Singing to her a liar, a liar, a liar Oh, fellas who've met her can never forget her She sets all her hearts in a whirl Oh, Nellie O'Morgan with her barrel organ The Irish-Italian girl <laughs> And then you've got all these crazy songs, you know, about Green Ireland and the shamrocks and particularly the Irish mothers who loved and died and tears. There was tears all over the place. But the loneliness of emigration was atrocious. You left a family at home knowing you were never going to see them ever again. And so you got songs like this one, you know. Sure, you should have seen the things I saw. It was just the other night. I'd never seen the likes of it. It was such a pleasing sight. I was happy for... I'm going into the other air now. Oh, you should have seen the things I saw. It was just the other night. I've never seen the likes of it. Twas such a pleasing sight. I was happy for a moment, but now I'm feeling blue. For what I saw, I'll see. I'm into the other air. I'll start with the chorus, and then it'll come back to me. 
Sure, the shamrocks were growing on Broadway. Every girl was an Irish colleen. And the town of New York was the county of Cork. All the buildings were painted green. Sure, the Hudson looked just like the Shannon. Oh, how good and how real it did seem. I could hear mother singing, the sweet Shandon bells ringing. It was only an Irishman's dream. Sure, you never miss familiar seams until you've been away. You will never know what homeland means till you're away to stay. And you welcome each reminder of the places you still miss. I'd give the world to dream again another dream like this. Sure, the shamrocks were growing on Broadway. Every girl was an Irish colleen. And the town of New York was the county of Cork. All the buildings were painted green. Sure, the Hudson looked just like the Shannon. Oh, how good and how real it did seem. I could hear mother singing the sweet Shandon bells ringing. Twas only an Irishman's dream. So you had all those old sentimental songs and Irishmen crying in their beer. And, but it was a terrible sadness. It was a terrible loneliness. In my father's family, there was 13, there was 13 children. Nine of them emigrated to America. My father had a brother he never saw. He was gone before he ever was old enough to know him. And they never came back. I've sung those few songs of the famine because this year, in fact last year, just the year gone by, we're remembering what happened in our country 150 years ago. The centenary of that terrible evil, it passed almost unnoticed. In 1947, it passed almost unnoticed in Ireland. However, last year, we commemorated those who survived the famine. We remember those who didn't survive the famine. In 1947, we never spoke about the famine. Maybe we weren't confident enough as a young nation. Maybe we were too unsure of ourselves to speak out about the injustice that was done to us as people by England, our neighbour. Anyway, on another tack, one thing I've... Driving out here with Hal from Salt Lake City, you drive across a desert. He said, you see that mountain over there? That's 100 miles away. You could never see anything like that in Ireland. The furthest you could see is about five or six miles down the road. It's, it's just the nature of the country, the scale anyway. If you drive more than about three hours in Ireland, you'll end up in the sea. <laughs> the largest plain, the largest flat area we have in Ireland is the Curra of Kildare, and it would fit into one of the fields nearly I saw out there just outside the town. The scale of the country. However, the songs cover all aspects of Irish life, and I believe that they, in many cases, are the unwritten history of our people. They deal with things that were important to them. Those who don't know Ireland find it hard to imagine the scale of the country. It's a country where a neighbour can be somebody living four miles away, and where every little field has its own name. You look at here at the vast expanses. Every field in Ireland, when you fly over it, somebody in a plane, you see all these small fields. Every one of those fields has a name. Gort na Gopel, Gort na Sheehan. 
they just every if 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 you're talking to a farmer, he'll tell you the name of which field he's going to. He's never going to talk about the thirty thousand acres down the down the road. A farm in Ireland, an average, would be something in the region of 30 to 40 acres. That would be a reasonable farm. My father's people, with, with 13 of them, lived on 10 acres. At the whim of a landlord, my grandfather was evicted twice. And there's a poet, Patrick Kavanagh. Most of you are into, into poetry here. But Patrick Kavanagh, some of you will know of W.B. Yeats, who was the big international poet. And his, his, a magnificent poet, his love poems, you know, had I the embroidered cloths of heaven and... Hey, his great love for Maud Gawne McBride, all catalogued in his poetry. But a man said to me some time ago, Yeats never drank from the well of the people. And I don't think he did. Yeats was of the ascendancy. But there's a poet called Patrick Cavney you should read if you want to know about the poetry of the people. Patrick Cavney, in a poem of his called The Epic, it's about a row over a small field, a useless field, but it caused a row between two families. He says, I have lived in important places, times when great events were decided, who owned that half rood of rock and no man's land, surrounded by our pitchforked armed claims. I heard the Duffy shouting, damn your soul, and old McCabe stripped to the waist, stepped that plot defying blue cast steel. Here's the march along those iron stones, that was the year of the Munich bother, which was most important. I inclined to lose my fate in Ballyrush and Gurchin till Homer's ghost came whispering to my mind. He said, I made the Iliad from such a local row. Gods make their own importance. When he's trying to date that event, the row over the little field, he says, that was the year of the Munich bother. The whole beginning of the Second World War paled into insignificance over the road in the field, you know. That was the year of the, the, that little row over in Munich, you know, with Hitler. And then he says he tended to lose his fate until Homer's ghost said, I made the Iliad from such a local row between two people, you know. And again, he has that same importance of the locality and the parish when he talks of his own place. He says, my black hills have never seen the sun rising. Eternally they looked north towards Armagh. Lot's wife would not have been salt if she had been as incurious as my black hills when dawn whitens Glastrummond Chapel. And he says again, the sleety winds, he's talking about two travellers going home and they're sheltering from the, from the rain and they're talking about the land that they're sheltering in. And the sleety winds fondled the rushy beards of Shanko Duff while cattle drovers sheltering in feather in a bush look up and say, who owns them hungry hills that the water hen and snipe have forsaken? A poet, then by Christ he must be poor. I hear and is my heart not badly shaken. You know? And Kavanagh's listening as well because Kavanagh's behind the other bush and he hears these fellas talking. One says, who owns that useless land? And the other fellow says, a poet, by Christ he must be poor. And Kavanagh says, I hear, and is my heart not badly shaken, you know?
Funding for Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer is provided by the Foundation at Hearst Castle, where donors and members experience exclusive events that recreate what it was like to be a guest of William Randolph Hearst, from swimming in the iconic Neptune Pool to dining in Hearst's private guesthouse overlooking the Pacific Ocean. The Foundation at Hearst Castle's ongoing mission is to support the conservation and restoration of Hearst Castle while offering youth programs for underserved students, preserving the past and inspiring future generations of dreamers. These children experience a world of science, technology, engineering, art, and math at Hearst Castle STEAM, along with studying the legacy of Julia Morgan, one of the most important women in the history of engineering and architecture. The foundation at Hearst Castle not only changes the lives of children, but also provides lifetime memories and unrivaled experiences for our generous donors and members. Discover how you can become a member by going to foundation at hearstcastle.com and learn how you can support this unique and invaluable mission. You've been listening to the Lowell Thomas award-winning travel show Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer, a featured podcast on NPR.org's podcast directory. Produced by California Central Coast NPR affiliate KCBX. You are invited to subscribe to Journeys of Discovery with Tom Wilmer on NPR.org, NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher.com, and more than 20 other podcast channels around the world. To learn more about Tom Wilmer's journeys around America and the world, log on to ThomasWilmer.com. This is Roseanne Cash, and I'm sitting here with Tom Wilmer. Please support your local NPR station. I listen to WNYC in New York. In fact, NPR is all I listen to. If I didn't have NPR, I would feel like my lifeline to the world has been cut. So, yes, please support your local NPR station. Mm -hmm.